although that might have been interesting for me to preach to you while you stood for the next 35 minutes. <laughs> Everybody loves to hear success stories, right? Uh, we love those stories where somebody overcomes these impossible obstacles to uh, make their way and overcome and, and uh, great things result. But I wonder how you feel about uh, the story of Clarence Jordan. Uh, Clarence Jordan grew up in a prominent family. He grew up in privilege in Talbotton, Georgia. But although he was tr privileged, he was also troubled. He was troubled by what he saw around him, the uh, economic injustice, the racial injustice. And even as a, uh, a, a young man uh, looking to his future, he felt, I need to do something about it. Uh, I want to try and make a difference. And so his first stop in trying to make a difference was to uh, enroll in uh, a program of agriculture. He went to the University of Georgia, uh, studied agriculture with the, the aim to help uh, poor local for farmers to farm more efficiently and to so uh, better their lives. During his studies, however, he became convinced that the needs that he saw around him were not just economic. Uh, they were at least economic, but they were also spiritual. And so after graduating from the University of Georgia, he then went on to do uh, seminary studies at Southern Baptist Seminary. Uh, he actually completed a PhD in New Testament Greek and so had armed himself to uh, provide some practical skills uh, to help local farmers as well as some uh, spiritual answers from the scriptures and, and so had equipped himself for what he saw to be his life calling. In 1942, he set up an interracial farming community that came to be known as Koinonia. Uh, it was unprecedented for uh, the American South at the time to have people of all backgrounds working together, farming together, studying the scriptures together, and sharing their lives together. And it seemed that he was making a difference in people's lives. It seemed that he was providing some real help. And yet, as you can perhaps guess, not everyone was very happy about what he was doing. Uh, the fences of the, uh, in, in this uh, farming cooperative were cut. Uh, the crops were stolen. Garbage was dumped onto the fields. Uh, they had a roadside market that they had set up to sell their produce. Uh, it was bombed. At several times, uh, there would be sprays of machine gun fire onto the houses that were a part of this collective. Fires were set on the property. Jordan himself was excommunicated from the local churches. And finally, the community launched a program uh, to basically shut them down through an economic boycott to remove their means of livelihood and uh, production. On October 29th, 1969, Clarence Jordan died at the age of 57 from a heart attack. When he died, the, the local coroner refused to even uh, to examine his corpse to pronounce him dead. His body was placed in a shipping crate and buried in an unmarked grave on his property, and only his immediate family, 
his koinonia partners and some of the poor from the community attended his funeral. Hollywood certainly won't be making a movie of his life anytime soon. Uh, People won't be rushing out to buy books on how he did it. But I wonder what you make of his life. What what do you think of a life given to, uh, to what he gave himself to that seemed to end so badly? It didn't seem to work. I wonder whether you think his sacrifices were worth it. Whether he should have devoted his energy somewhere more practical, where he could have seen, seen more of a difference. I ask those questions because often when we are faced with choices in life, choices that involve sacrifices, uh, choices where we are, we are called to, to do something or to not do something, we often in our mind subtly make a cost-benefit analysis. Uh, people say things like, I don't think it'll make that much difference anyway. Or we say things like, I did everything God wanted me to do and it still didn't work out. Today we look at a passage where a person showed an extraordinary level of faithfulness. He had seemingly unparalleled, at least as a king, an unparalleled life of faithfulness and devotion, and it didn't seem to be enough. It didn't seem to, quote-unquote, work. It didn't seem to have the, the lasting effect that we might have anticipated. And his life helps us, I believe, to examine why we do what we do and what what is our motivation when we make sacrifices, when we we say yes to God or, or say no to things that would stand in the way of our relationship with him. Those may be questions that go around in your mind, and those may be calculations that you might you may find yourself making as you see God calling you to obedience in various areas of your life. And so I want you to, to, to examine your heart and uh, God's will as we consider the scriptures together. Uh, we are in the Second Kings, uh, and I will be reading from chapter 23, starting in verse 21. In your pew Bible, it's on page 308, and I'm going to read from verse 21 all the way down to verse 27. 2 Kings 23, 21 to 27. And the king commanded all the people, keep the Passover to the Lord your God as it is written in this book of the covenant. For for no such Passover had been kept since the days of the judges who judged Israel or during all the days of the kings of Israel or of the kings of Judah. But in the 18th year of King Josiah, this Passover was kept to the Lord in Jerusalem. Moreover, Josiah put away the mediums and the necromancers and the household gods and the idols and all the abominations that were seen in the land of Judah and in Jerusalem, that he might establish the words of the law that were written in the book that Hilkiah the priest found in the house of the Lord. Before him, there was no king like him who turned to the Lord with all his heart and with all his soul and with all his might according to all the law of Moses. Nor did any like him arise after him Still, the Lord did not turn from the burning of his great wrath, 
by which his anger was kindled against Judah because of all the provocations with which Manasseh had provoked him. And the Lord said, I will remove Judah also out of my sight as I have removed Israel. And I will cast off this city that I have chosen, Jerusalem, and the house of which I said, my name shall be there. This is the word of God. Now this passage gives us what I believe are three lessons that, that, that can help us as we seek to follow Jesus Christ. The first thing that you learn is that following Jesus involves saying yes to the things that please him. There are things that we add to our, uh, add to our lives out of, uh, out of devotion and in response to what Jesus has done in our life. Following Jesus means saying yes to the things that please him. Now, for some of you, that may seem obvious, but sometimes Christians can define their life primarily in the things that they avoid. I don't do this, I don't do this, I don't do that, and that, that's the essence of their faith. But there are things that we need to add as well as subtract. In Josiah's case, one of the things that he added was the Passover celebration. In the Old Testament, it was an important celebration of what God had done on behalf of the Israelites. God had called them to, to keep this celebration. In verse 21, he commands the people, keep the Passover to the Lord your God, as it is written in the book of the covenant. It's interesting that he specifies it, it is a Passover we're keeping, but it is a Passover to the Lord your God, as it is written in the book of the covenant. He's not really interested in looking for some new way to celebrate it. He's not interested in innovation or novelty when it comes to what God has specified and asked for. He wants it done according to the scriptures and, and, and in response to what God has written. And it's important because sometimes we, we make changes in our lives in response to our faith but those changes need to be guided by what God has written, not just by our feelings, not by even our excitement, but by what God has said. You may have thought this was pretty obvious for Josiah. Surely all the Jews kept the Passover. And yet that wasn't the case. Uh, verse 22 makes it clear the Passover was largely a lost tradition. Uh, for at least during his father's reign, that where he had um, almost completely turned his back on uh, the God of the scriptures, you saw there was uh, a, a turning of the nation. And so probably for at least the last 50 years, there had been almost no one keeping the Passover. It, at first reading, it may seem like nobody had celebrated the Passover since the time of the judges, that, that it had completely fallen out of favor. But if you read carefully, it says no such Passover had been kept. So there were times um, on an individual level, individual families likely celebrated the Passover to a certain extent at various times and in various generations. Uh, in, under King Hezekiah, there had been some national celebration uh, that we learn about in Second Chronicles 30. But there had been nothing on this scale and nothing in its attention to the details of what God had prescribed in his word. And it's mentioned because God is interested in those details. He, he is honored when we honor his word and when we take what he has said seriously. 
that's important because often we struggle to say yes to Jesus when it is at odds with our tradition. There are a number of places and a number of areas where this comes up, but, but with baptism, for instance, often people will look at the scriptures and they'll say, yes, I realize that people in the New Testament seem to be baptized by immersion and, and only after having, been, having put their faith in Jesus Christ, having repented of their sins, I, I, I get that that's what it says, but in my tradition, that's not how we've done things. Or in my family, that's not been our practice. And when our traditions and God's word come in conflict, the, the temptation is to follow our traditions instead of following God's word. Well, in King, King Josiah's case, his tradition was that nobody had been practicing this for a very long time. He didn't have any tradition to go on. He didn't have anyone standing behind him saying, yeah, this is the way we've been doing it. You just keep doing it that way. No, if, if he was going to obey God, he would be obeying God at the expense of his tradition and at the expense of his family's practices. King Hezekiah decided, I'm going to honor God, as his word says. I'm going to step out regardless of how people have been doing it. Now, notice also in verse 23 that this happened in the 18th year of his reign. We know that King Josiah came to, came to, uh, came to rule at, at age 8. So he's only 26, and maybe you're thinking, well, he's, he's still very young, and he's uh, still very young as a, as a man at this time. But the fact is, he has been 18 years into his reign, and he hasn't celebrated the Passover yet. And, and that's important because sometimes we develop a pattern of doing things, and if that pattern doesn't include celebrating the Passover or doing any other thing that we see in Scripture but we haven't responded to, sometimes the temptation can be to say, well, if I started doing that now, if I made a change in that area of my life, people would think it awfully strange. People would think, like, why are they doing that now? Where'd that come from? And yet you look at Josiah's life 18 years into his reign, he says, no, I think scripture is pretty clear here. I need to do this. I, I, I want to respond to him. Even, and, and in Josiah's case, you know what? Nobody thought it was strange. Instead of thinking that it was strange that he had done this or in, in strange that we make changes in our life, instead people look at us and say, well, that person's still growing. That, that person's still taking new steps of obedience. And, and it inspires the people around you. It inspires them to say, I, I wonder what, what are some new steps that God might be calling me to make? Where do I need to step out and courage in responding to God and his word? Now, following Jesus means adding things to our life in response to his word. Uh, Ephesians 4.24 gives us a, a picture of this, and it says, Put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. I love the word put on here because it's a word that usually gets used with clothing. It's a word that in, in, in the first century that they would use when they were putting on a coat or putting on a, a set of clothes. Here, it's not a set of clothing that's being put on. It is uh, putting on the new you, uh, the putting on that person that you are in Christ. 
And the idea is that having put your faith in Jesus Christ, there are certain things, not in your, your actual clothing, but certain things in your practices and your decisions, your character, your lifestyle, that you should add to reflect that. That <coughs> you should give yourself to uh, things that, it, that reflect your faith. What, what do you need to put on? <coughs> what are some things that you need to add to your life as a f- reflection of your faith in him? What are those things that would better reflect his character through uh, the decisions, through your lifestyle, through what God would do in your heart? Following Jesus means saying yes to the things that please him. So we've said that it involves some saying yes, but it also involves some saying no as well. And often the subtraction is more painful than the addition. Following Jesus means saying no to things that don't please him. Now, I think many people would have been really excited about the Passover celebration. People love a big party. And if the king announces there's going to be a national celebration, there's a bit of spiritual meaning invested in it. People get hope, feel hopeful, big, big celebration, big party, lots of eating. I think most people would have been very happy. But then he makes some other decisions that would probably be not so well received. In verse 24, it says, he puts away the mediums, necromancers, and household gods and idols. What people were doing is they were going to people that they would help them consult with the dead, help them connect with the spirits of their dead ancestors. Uh, They were turning to idols that they would look to for strength and for guidance. They were doing what people always do when they turn their backs on the true living God, which is look for power, support, and guidance in other places that don't require anything of them. They would say what people in our generation say, we're spiritual, not religious. Meaning we look to things that will provide us guidance and power, but just things that won't call us to account. So people will look to charms or beads or stones or astrology. And the scripture encourages us that following Jesus involves some subtraction and saying no to some of the things that displease him, some of the things that would stand in for him, become his rival, that would take the place that he deserves. So true faith should be accompanied by subtraction. But I I love how Josiah says no to some of the things in his life. Because some people, what happens, they get so excited about their faith in Jesus, they just start saying no to all kinds of things. They, They get there's some excitement, there's some passion, there's some zeal, and and they start cutting things out of their life and making all kinds of rules, and they're getting all excited, and yet some of it is just not guided by by God's word. It's guided by their emotions. And, And so they end up cutting things out of their life that God says, no, there's nothing wrong with that. Uh, that's actually good, and, and, and we can add uh, commands that God has not given. Josiah didn't do that. In verse 24, he shows that the subtractions he was making were carefully guided by the scriptures. 
Because after listing all the things he did, did away with, it adds that he might establish the words of the law that were written in the book that Hilkiah the priest found in the house of the Lord. So his faith moved him to say no to things, but only those things that were clearly described by the scriptures themselves. He wanted God to be directing his no, not just people's opinion, his own uh, pressure from people around him, or even his own uh, feelings of uh, zeal and passion. Now, we've already read in Ephesians how God directs us to put on some, some things, put on the new you. Uh, but in Ephesians 4.22, Paul uses similar clothing language to say, put off your old self. Now, put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desi- desires. There, there are certain things in everybody's life that as we come to put our trust in Christ and grow in our knowledge of him, we recognize this just isn't consistent with who I am. This isn't consistent with what Christ has done for me. It, it, isn't, it isn't consistent with his word. It's not pleasing to him. And it's something that I need to put off. Like an, an old article of clothing that doesn't fit anymore or just says something about who you are that isn't true of who you are today, it's something we need to discard, throw away. It's something we need to put off. Where do you need to do that? Where do you need either moral or spiritual subtraction in your life? You recognize that there's things there that just don't fit. They, They just don't reflect who Christ has made you to be. They don't reflect the new you that he's called you to become. Where do you need to make that subtraction? What are the things that get in the way of the fellowship with a God that has called you in love? So far, we've said that following Jesus means saying yes to some things, saying no to other things. There's some addition. There's some subtraction. We put off the old. We put on the new. But... People can do all of that addition and subtraction and they can do it for the wrong reasons. And so the conclusion of our passage drives us in a different direction. Josiah's life shows us that we follow Jesus to bring pleasure to him, not just because it works. It's important because much of our obedience can become not just a grateful response to a God who has loved us, which it should be. Instead, sometimes we can take our obedience and we can use it as kind of a negotiation with God. I'll do this for you if you do this for me. I'll give you something because I think it's important to you because I want you to deal with this thing over here because it's important to me. And we can turn obedience into a negotiation. It can be something that we use to get God on our side. But God calls us to follow Jesus, to bring pleasure to him, not just because it works. Now, Josiah's faithfulness is incredible. If you look in verse 25, it says, before him there was no king like him who turned to the Lord with all his heart and with all his soul and with all his might, according to all the law of Moses, nor did any like him arise after him. This statement fills in a lot of the details for us. 
because although we have learned that King Josiah was a great king and perhaps unparalleled in his faithfulness to God, this, this passage helps us to understand some of the things. Some of the changes that he made, we learn from this, this verse here, we know he made them from his heart. We know that he made these changes not just because he was pressured into them by his advisors or because he was blindly going through the motions. They were, they were decisions that came from deep conviction in his soul. And he gave, to him with, gave himself to them with all his heart, with all his soul. So there had never been a king like him. But sometimes we can do everything we can pour ourselves out. We can be as faithful as we can possibly be. And it isn't enough. It doesn't seem to make the difference that we might have thought. Verse 26 says, Still, the Lord did not turn from the burning of his great wrath. The key word there is still. In the King James, it says, notwithstanding. Some, tra- some translations have nevertheless, or even so. And the idea is that after having done all of this, we would have kind of expected big, big changes in, in the, the, the future of the nation, or at least in how some of the, the details that followed might have gotten worked out. But there's that nevertheless, even so, there, and it reminds us, yeah, God did not turn back his wrath that he had promised for the nation. Now, don't misunderstand this. We, we are not saying that things didn't change in Josiah's life personally. He had been promised that he would go to his grave in peace. He, would, he was promised that the judgment on the nation would not come in his lifetime. He was spared that, but he was already promised that at the end of the last chapter. And since then, he's done all of this amazing stuff. He has knocked himself out in faithfulness to the Lord and leading the nation back to him. We're expecting to hear about what amazing kids he had, how, how faithful his, his sons and daughters must have been. We're expecting to learn that, that these changes that he made in the nation lasted for generations upon generations and, and just this great revival to the Lord continued and continued. And in fact, none of that is the case. Josiah's son was named Jehoahaz. And what we learned about him was he did evil in the eyes of the Lord. He only reigned for three months as king. After three, it took three months for the Lord to make the declaration about him, he did evil in my sight. And Pharaoh came from Egypt with his army and uh, arrested, imprisoned him, and took him from office. His son didn't turn out so well, even after all that he did, notwithstanding all that faithfulness in his life. You think, well, maybe that was just Jehoahaz. Surely his other sons were really great. Actually, after Jehoahaz was imprisoned, uh, another one of his sons was made king. And he was even worse. And we're left with the conclusion that sometimes we do 
all that we can, and it's still not enough. It still doesn't work. It doesn't turn out the way we expect it. Like with Clarence Jordan, it seems that evil wins. But that isn't the takeaway from Josiah's life. That's not the lesson we are to learn from him. I believe that Josiah teaches us that obedience isn't a bargain that we make to get what we want. It's not something that we give to God because there's something that we really want to get from him. So we're not faithful to Jesus so that we, because of what we can get. We're not, faithful to, we're not faithful as parents so that God will give us perfect kids. And if that's, a, if that's a bargain that you have unconsciously made with God, repent of that bargain. That, that, that is not, we are faithful to God as parents because God is worthy of our faithfulness. We're not faithful in our finances so that God can get us out of debt. He might get you out of debt, but when you turn your faithfulness into finances as a bargaining tool to get God to do something for you, that, that, that just cheapens God. It cheapens what we have done for him. We're faithful in our finances because God is worthy of our faithfulness. Maybe you've, maybe you've set out to be faithful in your career because you want God to bless that career and make it successful. And maybe he will. But we still need to repent of that bargain because it cheapens who God is. It cheapens what we've done for him. It, it turns it into something that it was never intended to be. We honor God because he is worthy of our honor. We, we follow God. We obey him because he is the one of, of who, who has earned it for us. And we want to bring pleasure to him. We want to express gratefulness. We want to express the joy that he has given us. And we say, he is worthy. We don't, we don't say, what he might give us will be worth it. And Josiah's life helps me to, helps me to see that. Tim Keller said, to become a Christian is not to get help for your agenda, but to take on a whole new agenda, the will of God. It, it, it's a different way of seeing the same commands in Scripture. One uses them for you. Another one sees them as a response to him. I learned this as a missionary in Japan. I spent seven years preparing to go and serve. As I arrived, um, first stop was language study. I spent two years in full-time language study. Then I spent another year interning with a Japanese pastor, so it had been a full decade now in preparation. But it was all leading up to a church that we were hoping to establish. And we made a, we made a move. We'd already moved from Canada to Japan. Then at the end of that, at the 10-year mark, we make the move from uh, one city to another, start to uh, establish a new church. For the next two years, we committed ourselves to reaching that community. We committed, committed ourselves to do nothing other than serving people who don't know Christ, making Christ known to them, establishing relationships and earning their trust. And at the end of that two years, the whole 
goal and that whole process was leading up to the launch of this church plant. And we were going to go big. We were going to go all out. Uh, we held a series of uh, house parties where we invited all of, our, uh, all of the people that we had been investing in, all of the people that we had been serving and witnessing to. We invited them to tell them about what was going to happen. We hand-delivered 10,000 flyers in the community. We put out a, there was a giant billboard right in the middle of the city where we, were, we advertised the launch of our worship service. And the day came and not a single person that we had spent two years investing in from the community came. We had a room full of well-wishers. We had some, some, some partners that were there to encourage us and to support us. But there was no response. And we were left asking, why did we do all that? What was it all for? And began to question our, our hearts and our motives. And in the days following that, as we did begin to question, what was it all for? Was it all worth it? Should we have, should we have done all that? We didn't ignore the, the, the important and obvious questions. Maybe we did something really wrong. Maybe we, we did something really stupid. But as we consulted with our Japanese partners, we were convinced that wasn't it. That wasn't the point. That wasn't the lesson. Instead, the conclusion I came to was that even if this entire city and maybe even the entire nation rejects the good news of Jesus Christ and his offer of salvation, it is worth it for people to give everything they can to as passionately and as diligently as possible lift up Christ and offer the eternal life that he came to give. That even for people that are dying and rejecting that message, they, God is worthy enough to have that message proclaimed in passion and faithfulness. And so ultimately our conclusion was he was worth it. It was worth it for his sake for his glory, regardless of how people responded. Now, that wasn't the end of the story. People eventually did respond. People eventually did come to Christ. A church eventually was established, but not before we were tested, not before God saw what we were doing it for, taught us what we were investing, making those sacrifices for. And so this morning we've talked about some, some additions that we make and some subtractions that we make as a result of the faith that God nurtures in our hearts. We talked about saying yes to some things that, that bring pleasure to him and saying no to some things that displease him. And we recognize that those decisions come with sacrifice. They come with a cost. But what we're saying is when you are making that cost-benefit analysis in your mind, we don't make those sacrifices to get something or because it'll work or because we want God to do something in some area of our life. We make those sacrifices because 
God is the one who has sacrificed everything for us because he is the one who has given up so much in love and he took the initiative, he took the first move and he asks us to respond out of love for him because he is worthy, not because there's something of worth that we think that we might get, get from him on the side. Let's look to him in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are such a great and gracious God. Sometimes we don't understand what you're doing. And sometimes it's because we come to you with the wrong expectations. Would you give us the courage to take a step this morning? Would you help the person trying to respond to you in a way that's a departure from their tradition? Would you help the person who knows they need to make a painful subtraction in their life? And when you help us to do it because you're worth it, not just because what you give us is worth it. Help us to follow you just to be found faithful. Help us to honor you just because you're worthy. We ask you these, these things in Jesus' name.